huge bonfire. <laughs> oh man, bonfire of the vanities. But the smells, Dave, the smells that came out of that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was the the ultimate scratch and sniff right there. <laughs> Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Dave. Thanks for joining Bob and I for our podcast, Thriving in Dystopia. And even though we always try and be professionals, sometimes we swear. So just know that going in. All right, Bob, welcome back. And welcome back to all those lovely listeners out there. Thriving in Dystopia, episode six. How you doing today, Bobo? Yeah, I'm doing Quite well, Dave. It's great to be back in the sound studio with you. And <laughs> how about yourself, Dave? How what, you doing? What a sound studio. Yeah, I'm just looking around at all these knobs on the walls and realizing that it's actually just my living room. Um, it's an impressive space. I really appreciate yeah. what you've done here. Yeah, it. you know, to redo my whole apartment like this, it's actually a duplex, but to redo it all, it cost upwards of maybe five or six dollars in stickers and decals. So the stickers could do a lot. I think they're a very underrated, um, you know, tool in the world. Yeah, definitely. God, I remember when I was a kid and I used to get stickers, I would love putting stickers on my dresser. That was like my all time favorite thing to do. And I loved when I got stickers that smelled funny. <laughs> You know, like those scratch and sniff snickers stickers. Yeah. I was just like so into it. I loved waking up and like scratching all my scratch and sniffs and I would put all of them together so I could scratch them all at once and just get a, a big old orgy of smells. It was the best thing in the world. I think we both like both of our top dresser drawer was just lined with stickers and yeah, gosh, we had such a good collection. Do you remember the day that mom got rid of those? Those All dressers. Of ours, oh, those dressers? Did yeah. she get rid of both of them on the same day? <laughs> Just a big old bonfire out back? Huge bonfire. <laughs> oh, man. Bonfire the of the smells, vanities. Dave, the smells that came out of that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was the, the ultimate scratch and sniff right there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, enough sticker talk, Bob, don't you think? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Uh, we'll we'll get back into stickers later. <laughs> we will. We will. It'll somehow. Yeah. It'll like. It, there's some metaphor there. Yeah. Um, Bob, I've been getting a lot of good feedback from people out there. Um, I had a really nice long talk with a lot of my friends in Vermont, and yeah, we just had a really good discussion on white privilege and what it means and how to confront it and. One thing I just wanted to share with you, but also with everybody, is just this idea of vulnerability. And the idea is, like, I feel like we're really putting ourselves out there, but it's something that is so important when you're talking about racism or really anything, when you're putting your, like, full person out there. And I know we're hiding behind all the sticker knobs at uh, Studio Thriving in Dystopia, but it's true that, like, we're really putting our face out there. And I feel like that's super important to do because otherwise, if you're not being vulnerable, then you're not going to be able to dismantle some of these systems of oppression that we've been talking about. 
That's a really good point. Yeah, it's um, yeah, yeah. Vulnerability leads to change, and it's so hard. Um, and I feel like we've just scratched the surface in the the podcast, and but I think it's a necessary process. I'm really pleased to hear that that it's sparked some of those conversations. And yeah, yeah. I mean, that was one of our original intentions. If you go all the way back to episode one, you know, talking yeah. about that community building um, aspect of what we're trying to do here. And I realized I missed a great pun. You said scratch the sur- surface and I should have said scratch, scratch and sniff. Ah, <laughs> oh, dang. Well, I'll edit that later. Don't worry. I'll edit that down. It will sound seamless. <laughs> yeah. I also oh, want to mention we got our first tweet from the wonderful Rosie and um, she is following us. She appreciates the range of topics that we've talked about. Um, so it was really good nice. feedback to hear as well. And um, we are going to get Rosie um, a patch, as we promised a few episodes ago. Nice. Yeah. That's great to finally get a, get our first uh, Twitter follower. But yes. I think we, re- we both realize that that's not the way to social media out these days. No. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're getting there. We're, we're figuring it out. We, we also, I guess I'll take the opportunity to say that we started a Instagram account and appreciate the folks who, who joined us or who, uh, like, uh, we're friends with on Instagram and, um, yeah, just to, to know that that's out there too. Yeah. How could, uh, someone who's a loyal listener, but doesn't know you, the Instagram, um, coordinates how could they find you bob find us i guess yeah um if you just search thriving in dystopia it's um that's our handle and so it should come up yeah i think too one of the things i've been enjoying on the instagram account is every time you post an episode you put a a picture that's relevant and i've loved the pictures so far last week it um you put a picture of lebron james wearing a shirt that said I can't breathe on it, which felt really sweet. Um, really just like a perfect, perfect picture. But yeah. Yeah. It summarized sort of what we were trying to get at in the episode last week. Anyhow, this week we're going to be talking about um, the hashtag defund the police movement um, and all the things that we've kind of been thinking about surrounding defunding. Um, but Yeah, we haven't really talked about the order of the show or how we want it to go. And um, one of the things that we like to do most of all is just talk with each other and try and process things with each other. Yeah, I actually had a... Go ahead. I I had a way to open the show and it's a bit of a curveball because I didn't talk with you about it beforehand. But are are you ready? Sort of in the the thread of the sports show last week to receive a curveball from me? Yeah, yeah. Let's go for it. Here comes Dave. Um, Well, you know, one thing we do in this show is try to bring in dystopian literature and movies as a framework to get some understanding. So I'm going to bring in a movie that is a dystopian in an interesting way. I mean, it, it was set in the present, but it, I believe for me, it it works as a dystopia and I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this movie. So um, it's a little movie that I think you know. It's called Do the Right Thing. And oh, nice. I wonder if you could 
talk about okay so I'll, I'll mention that it's a you know spike lee movie um came out in 1990 and it is all shot it's like one day in um bedford stuyvesant brooklyn um and bed is a mostly black neighborhood and however there is an italian pizzeria in which the lead character works at lead character played Mm -hmm. by spike lee mookie is the name of the character there is uh, it's like a ensemble cast right like a lot of different characters and um there's a korean um like grocer there are police there like mookie is dating or actually maybe is married to a puerto rican woman um they have a uh, a child so it's like a lot of different issues relating to race and racism um and so what i wanted to get your take on was like the final scene i guess spoilers ahead um but important to talk about this final scene where after one of the characters is killed radio rahim is killed by the police oh, so um, within the like right outside of the pizzeria after a conflict with the um, owner and his sons, um, the police kill him. And um, in the this unsettled environment, Mookie goes and gets a, um, you know, a trash can and throws it through the window of Sal's famous. And um, then the crowd burns it down. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think it's a stretch to say that there are some intense parallels uh, to what we're dealing with now. Yeah. And just curious about your thoughts, because I know that's one of your favorite movies. One of the themes that comes throughout the whole movie is this idea of heat. Um, And heat is like plays such a big role in everything that's happening. And it, you know, it takes place in the summer, the opening scene, um, you have like Rosie Perez dancing um, to fight the power, which is like the theme, the theme song of the whole movie that goes runs throughout the whole movie. Um, and yeah, there's like, everyone's just overheated. There's ice. People are just like kind of at wit's end. And it kind of, it's, I think you've said this a few weeks ago, but you use the word pressure cooker. And that kind of feels like the whole situation that's happening. It's a pressure cooker of a situation. And I feel like it comes to a head at the end. And I remember thinking that one of the things that, because Mookie kind of is walking between two worlds, between Sal and between um, the world of Bed-Stuy, right? And I remember thinking that Mookie is taking all this anger that this crowd is feeling towards Sal and what happened. And he, he's like directing the anger towards the building. So they, they end up trashing the building and um, taking all this anger out on the property to make a statement. And in some ways, Mookie saves Sal's life by doing that. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I kind of struggle with that interpretation. That was like what I was thinking back in when I first saw it in 2000. Um, 
but I'm kind of thinking these days that maybe, I don't know. Do you think Mookie is trying to save Sal's life or he's just fed up at this point? It's um a moment that I think a lot of people have analyzed over the years and there's no, I don't think there's a right answer. And I, I think Spike Lee has some comments on it, um, but they're a little bit, you know, ambiguous as well. Um, so it's, it's just open to interpretation. And I, I've had that interpretation. Um, I think that actually feels very right to me in the context of that mm-hmm. movie. Um, and yeah, maybe, maybe that was right for Mookie in 1991, but maybe Mookie, um, in the year 2020 would do a different thing. Like, yeah, maybe. And it's interesting too, because I haven't watched, uh, the five bloods yet but it just came out which is spike lee's newest movie um yeah i do feel like that there's like so much happening in that movie it's definitely one of the most important movies to watch and such an iconic movie of our generation yeah it does a great job because most of the movie is before that happened so it's like you get to see what is behind um you know, what leads to that, that moment of tearing down Sal's famous and, Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's really, yeah. I mean, like I'm thinking about the, the different, you know, this is like so relevant to the burning down of the police precinct in Minneapolis, the like looting of target, and like the burning down of Wednesday, uh, or sorry, when Wendy's, um, just two days ago in Atlanta. Um, yeah. and you know, I made the comment on the show that riots work and the more and more I think about that, I really strongly believe that. Um, hmm. and I'm not thinking that like there is necessary like intention to when property destruction happens, but you know what 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 has come to my attention is like how like pro- what property destruction does so well is it um it, it works rhetorically meaning like it sets up us to think about like does target matter more or do black lives matter more it like really frames that question and and it also frames another question like oh you're calling these people looters well, what about the um, billionaires who have made an incredible amount of money off the pandemic? So it also sets up that like looter question. Um, so I think w- one of the things that like one of the outcomes of like property destruction is these questions that unveil how invested our society is in property um, mm. and, and capital. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's become more and more clear to me as, you know, we continue in these, like, the uprisings. Hmm. Yeah, well said, Bob. I like that. I like that idea of the rhetorical question. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so shall we get into a little bit of the main topic of the show and um, defunding? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, do you want to talk about... Any like introductory thoughts on on this question? Yeah, I guess one of the things that 
I feel like when you're looking at a system is it's important to sort of look at the history of the system. Um, sorry, I'll say institution. So when you're looking at an institution, it's, it's, I think it sort of frames things in a better way, sort of like Spike Lee spending an hour and a half before the riot framing things to sort of give us a better understanding. I think that that is important to do with the institution of policing in the United States. Um, and that was, I was thinking I could kind of walk through that a little bit in my own thinking. And um, as you tend to be a little bit more of the expert in the field, uh, maybe you could correct some of the stuff that I, that, that I have to say, and that might give us a little bit of a working framework of the history of policing in the U.S. Yeah, I think it's a great place to start. A lot of this history is going to come from a is a synthesis of the information that I read an article by Miriam Kaba in the New York Times, and it was called "Yes, We Literally Mean Abolish the Police." So, from my understanding, that policing really stemmed from two different spots: one in the South, um, and so sort of the South versus the North, and in the South, it um, came from slave patrols so like in the 17 and 1800s when um slavery was still legal in the u.s um the police system arose from these patrol units that would go out searching for slaves that had escaped the plantation and i think that that's in the south a really important note to to think about where like what are the roots of the policing system there and then as far as I can tell, in the North, um, policing came from sort of anti-union, so like labor labor busting, and that so, and those two mixing together sort of made up the the roots of where what policing looks like in the U.S. Does that seem right to you? Yeah, it does. And just an an added note, like in the North, it's like these kind of uh, groups that were hired by owners of factories and corporations to bust unions. Um, so it's like these kind of like private, you know, units to uh, break up labor organizing. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there, there's a word for it, right? Like something with pig or bank or breaker, piggy breaker banks. Penny? Oh, interesting. Is that where the word pigs come from? I think so. But, um, well, better hit those show notes, Bob. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. And then, you know, over the years, I was doing a little bit of research sort of because social change, like if you have this group that's sort of fun, like founded in violence, either in the violence of slavery or the violence of um, anti-labor. Um, you're going to see over the years that people are going to ask for a change from this institution in, in ways. And um, yeah, I just did, I looked up real quick. There was three different important moments. Um, one was called uh, the, the Lexow investigations or commissions, which happened in New York city in 1894. And that was, because a lot of police in this New York city were doing, were like clubbing people. So they were like beating them with uh, billy clubs. And then in 
there, the next one I found was the Wickershaw Commission in 1931, which was because police were doing interrogation in unjust ways. And I think that probably stems a little bit from like pre-Cold War type of stuff. Um, and the next one I found was the Kerner Commission in 1967, which was reacting to police um, violence starting um, rioting that would happen with protests, like peaceful protests in the 1960s. And one of the things that I was reading about all these commissions to look at policing and wrongdoings in policing was that all of them found that policing was the, like the underlying problem was that it was too violent. Like this, this idea of violence kept coming up and all of them said that there needs to be institutional change to create a more um, socially just way of policing. And I found that to be kind of interesting because of course, none of that has been fixed, right? So there's not been any, like all these commissions that happened didn't really fix any of the systemic problems that were happening with the policing system. And, you know, you, you move forward to 92 and Rodney King, you move forward to 2014 with um, Eric Gardner and the start of Black Lives Matter, and you keep moving forward. And there's this underlying idea of people demanding um, change. And all that we ever get is more funding going towards policing to make it into a more just system. But it it doesn't seem to be, no, I mean, for over a hundred years, over 130 years, none of these, none of these commissions or none of these, um, none of these movements have created any real systemic change in the system. Yeah, that's really well done, Dave. I mean, our, like the history that you walked us through there is so important and I didn't know about those first two reforms. Um, I have studied the Kerner report and that was a really well done report. And it showed like, not only is policing too violent, but it's stemming from racism that the United States is like, in their words, like two societies, um, one rich, one poor, one white, one black. And um, that report was really just never taken up by the government, but instead a counter narrative of law and order like is needed. This was like in the Nixon era, which set mm -hmm. the stage for the war on drugs um, in the Reagan era. Um, and then this massive expansion of police in the Clinton era. Um, so yeah, the, you know, the reforms of the Kerner report, um, or like the analysis was taken up with like, we need more policing. So mm -hmm. exactly yeah. what you're saying. Um, so that with all that history, um, you know, what is the way forward? It's clear that reform um, is, has failed. And just to be clear, my working definition this has been all over the news or social media is like, what is reform? What is defund and what is abolish? But my working definition of 
reform in the sense of policing in the U.S. is the idea of sort of spending more money to put police through different types of trainings that are um, going to sort of open their uh, – what's what's the training that they would go yeah, through? It's an anti-bias training, uh-huh. um, which uh, I mean – a story that puts that into perspective is in San Jose um, at some of the demonstrations, um, the police shot their own anti-bias trainer in the leg. Um, and so, and he was, he was on democracy now this morning talking about saying like, yeah, it doesn't work. So like the anti-bias oh, wow. trainer, they shoot him and he say, yeah, that's a doomed program. Yeah. So not only like spend money on anti-bias training, but also spend more money on um, what are they called? Body cams. Right. To sort of make police more accountable, which I mean, in the death of Eric Gardner, like the uh, police who killed him was like waving and smiling at the body cam. Right. Right. And I feel like there is, as John Oliver talked about, like, I kind of feel like police know that they're almost invincible or they're acting that way. You know, there's another case like in Minnesota, they've been post Philando Castile. Um, they've been going through a lot of anti-bias training, a lot of body cam stuff. And still the cop who killed George Floyd was, you know, he, I think he had something like 17 violations. So the system, like all these reforms are not catching anything that's happening. They're not like stopping the violence basically. And you can look at the history and that's been clear for over 130 years. The violence hasn't stopped. Yeah. And so we have this like idea in the United States that somehow something in history changed all the violence from the, um, the antebellum period. And that's just not true because the civil rights movement did things and it changed things, but the fundamental core of institutions hasn't changed. So if this institution that's founded on racist violence hasn't changed, then why would we think reforms would do anything if the core is about, so it's like, I like to think about it as like the idea that the police are here to protect and serve people is one of the biggest propaganda successes of the 20th century um Mm, right that's not what they do you know that's not their purpose the the purpose of the police is to protect private property and um all the power structures that are connected to private property um which which includes whiteness there's a great article whiteness as property so the police are protecting whiteness because it's a type of property in the united states they protect patriarchy because that's a type of property in the United States. Um, that's that that's what gave birth, you know, like both in the North and the South. It's about protecting capital. And that hasn't changed. And I think your history did a great job of that. So I'm getting fired up here because yeah, you are. I think we like, let's look at it clearly. Like this is what the institution is. So um, why would anything but getting rid of that institution be what we would want if we want less violence in our society. Yeah. So let's talk about defunding a little bit. And yeah, I'm, I guess I'm more curious to hear your interpretation. Um, 
and sort of talk about what what defunding means to you, especially now that I got you all fired up, Bob. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I think it's uh, that combination of this topic and a lot of coffee. Um, <laughs> okay, so yeah. defunding, um, it's emerged as a like idea and a, you know movement. Like it's happening in different places, and um, it is you know like I think around. I think it started to gain even more traction it like a few weeks ago out of Los Angeles. It was a part of the program of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, and they're well organized. And um, when the mayor of Los Angeles just a month ago wanted to increase the police budget, uh, BLM Los Angeles said, no, you can't do that. Look at the uprisings and um, you need to go the other direction and put this money into social programs. And, and they seem to have won um, that LA is going to cut the police budget by 150 million. So I think that sparked other places and, and maybe there's even earlier ones that sparked the LA one. Um, mm-hmm. It's emerged as like the Minnesota, Minneapolis city council is poised to disband the police department. So they're going beyond defunding to disbanding the police department. Um, so I guess a question is like, what is defunding and like, what are the goals of defunding? And I, so I think that's different in different locations based upon the group. I think that one thing that they do share is they want some of the money that's going from the police, that's going to the police department. They want that to go to um, other programs that will actually help people, you know, like, um, social workers or to hospitals or to schools. I think that's a major part of the defunding call. And then I think, um, if we look at it more historically, the call, like the, the even thinking for defunding is actually arising out of the prison abolitionist movement. Um, connected to groups like critical resistance and, you know, groups that have been working on bringing to light what the prisons and what police do in our society for a long, long time. This is like groups of mostly women of color, mostly black women. Um, And so they see the call for defunding as a step toward abolition towards an abolishment of the police and abolishment of, of prisons. Um, right. Where I think I saw a good meme around this. Uh, let's see if I can get the quote right. It's like defunding is um, like a byproduct, not a political horizon. So meaning like defunding should be happening. And it's like, if, abolitionist movements are strong enough abolition uh, defunding will happen but the the horizon is uh like total abolition um and i should mention that when groups talk about abolition they don't mean this is an event they don't mean it to like um happen like immediately or like but they see it as a way in which like they want people to start to envision what a society 
would look like without police and prisons and how can we get to that society? So it's also not just a focus on police and prisons. It's about the the entire structure, but it is a strong like rebuttal to reform. And they see that reforms only tend to grow prisons and grow police. Yeah, man, I feel like I have a lot to respond from that. Um, so I guess to start with, I feel like as a teacher who works in a district whose budget just got cut $16 million and where I look around my school and think about this, how different it's going to look like next year, um, losing a lot of critical staff members from our staffing and to, th to see someone like fucking Joe Biden say that we need to put $300 million towards policing, which is just like a weird blanket thing to say. Um, but it's just like, oh man, it's just like, no, that's not where the money needs to go. I feel like we need, we need help in the schools. We need help doing the work that we're doing because it's, it's so overwhelming to be a teacher right now. And yeah, I feel like that's, and I feel like anyone else that's working in social work or in hospitals, they know this, they're feeling the same thing right now that they, we need help. We need money. We need more people that are willing to work alongside us. Oh, no, I think that's a great example. Like your, your lived experience of like the ways in which your uh, work as an educator is um, incredibly affected by ballooning police budgets, what it's meant to your work. Yeah. Um, I have some other yeah. thoughts, but I wanted to hear more of your reactions to what I said previously. Yeah. I also feel like I like that idea of the steps towards a more utopian society. And I feel like the defunding is like a attainable step that feels approachable to most people. And feels like there's most people are sympathetic towards that. And it also feels somewhat realistic, especially with a lot of the successes that have been happening. Um, but yeah, like there's been a lot of great movement towards the, the defunding. And I know it's a long process, right? Like, yes, Minneapolis City Council voted unanimously to, to um, defund or abolish the police system, or at least look at it, right? But it's going to be a long process and it's not going to happen overnight, right? So they're starting to look at what are the steps, what what needs to happen next? And that's that's a really critical moment for us and for them to be looking at what, what can you do as a citizen to help make sure that the city council is staying engaged with the work that that you want to happen and that we want to see happen and we need to make happen. And I feel like that is one of the most important things about this movement is it feels attainable and it feels like we can, if we're working together to make sure that everyone's accountable, then we can actually do this, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I think so once people start doing this, um, they will probably encounter the question like, okay, so you want to take money away from the police or abolish the police? then what are the alternatives? What, how are you going to um, make sure that crime and violence doesn't happen in the community? And I think the best response to that is really what we're saying in this podcast, that 
police are not stopping violence in the community. Um, they're not um, stopping crime either, um, or a lot of crime. Look at all the white collar crime that happens in society. And also, um, in my study of domestic violence, police don't stop domestic violence either. Um, in fact, they often like just brush it off and allow it to, to continue. So um, there's so many types of crime and violence that police don't stop. And however, they do bring a lot of violence to communities. So alternatives, like anything is an alternative to that, right? Like um, right. How, how about, yeah, just like um, having programs in a community for, for kids. How about having schools? How about having like more access? Homeless centers. Yes. Uh, libraries and community centers, like anything, anything is an alternative to an institution of that type of violence. Yeah. Yeah. And not only that, on top of that, it's the idea that who is able to call the police to help them with their problem. And it's people like you and I, Bob, right? Yes. Not, not everyone has access to police that are going to help solve their problems rather than escalate them, you know? Yep. And I feel like I saw an interesting meme where it's like, imagine how you would feel if you called the fire department when your house was on fire and instead of coming to put out the fire, they punched you in the face and left. And it's like, yeah, that kind of feels like sometimes how some of these issues are being solved by police. The police are equipped with the tools of violence. So that's, you know, that's the logic of the institution. So that's the the ways in which a person of that institution will carry out their roles, you know? Yeah, that's a great point. I'm, I guess that kind of might lead us into what, I mean, the question that always gets asked is like, okay, so what's next? What can I do? Yeah. And maybe you could talk a little bit about your experience and give some ideas yeah, I would say like um, definitely education is always the first step and like learning about defunding and learning about the history that you talked about in abolition. I I would say like I would recommend people go to critical resistance, um, criticalresistance.org, I think, and they have a lot of great resources on what we've been talking about here. Um, and then if people already have that background, like um, – how can they engage in the like the work to defund that's going on right now? Um, I would say for me, like it's going to be different for every location, every locale. And um, looking into what's going on and contributing to movements that are going on, I think is the way to go. And that, But that can be hard to know what's going on. Um, I recently moved to Seaside and I like... I was searching for groups and I was searching under like mutual aid groups. And there's a lot of mutual aid groups have started since the pandemic started and I got connected and I found out there's a group um, that's working on these issues and they sent out like URLs to the city council meetings in Monterey and Seaside. So attending those council meetings, learning like what, uh, what is like the budget and then are there groups that are pushing for defunding in the area? Um, I think like one voice is 
unfortunately not going to do it. But I think in this moment, there's probably like a chorus of voices, like in many, many different locations. Um, I don't know about like more rural areas or like more conservative areas. Um, although Seaside is somewhat conservative. Um, so even here, um, yeah, but I, I would love to hear, uh, what you're doing, Dave, or what's happening in, in your, your context and, and anything that you've heard about as well. Yeah. I like this website. Critical resistance It is, uh, founded by Angela Davis. Did you know that? That's right. Yep. And right, right there in Oakley. Ruthie Gilmore. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And also another woman named Rose Braz. Um, yeah, I feel like that that kind of hits at one of the biggest successes of Black Lives Matter is that each organization is it is its own entity, meaning that we talked about this a little bit in the first episode is that idea of flexibility, right? And being able to adapt and being able to look at what's happening in in your specific area and making that work because it's so different, even though the world is so much more homogenous than it ever was. And the United States is very homogenous. Um, it's, it's important to see the differences and to see what is happening on that local level. So yeah, like you said, that grassroots um, sort of community building, right? And which is kind of one of the goals of this podcast is just having those discussions with those around you and finding out how to connect through discussions with your peers and your loved ones and um, local organizations and getting connected through that. And then, yeah, it's also like such an easy time right now to attend city council meetings easier than it's ever been because every city council meeting, not everyone, but the vast majority of them are going to be on zoom. Right. Right. So like in Fort Collins, it, you know, we have a city council meeting every Tuesday and it's easy to see the agenda and to tune in and to give voice when it's needed. But I think also groups that are working um, to defund or groups that are working for justice and peace and in your area, they're going to they're going to make noise when it's more important to be at those city council meetings, whether it's remotely or in person. I think that those are important messages to hear. So find a way to stay connected to those local organizations and it's just different for wherever you are, you know? So it's not like a homogenous answer because that's not how we're going to get the job done, you know? Yeah. It's like important to like learn from other locations, um, but then take that learning to whatever are the needs and like possibilities of all of our like actual social locations and contexts. We could start wrapping up and moving towards tuned in. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I guess I'll start with tuned in. I just have um, two things to talk about is one. I watched a video by a band named Shovels and Rope and they it's a very nostalgic video for me the the song is called boxcar but it's really well done on youtube and i watched that video last night and was just smiling it just reminded me of such a great time but also i think it's just 
one of the best vocal performances I've ever seen. And I really recommend watching Shovels and Ropes Boxcar on YouTube. And the other one I wanted to talk about is I um, am going to start reading How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And I'm excited about that and would like to invite anyone that wants to join to do so with me. Um, I'm going to be reading it with a few people so far. I know that a few friends in Vermont are reading it and hopefully that will do some good learning and I'm excited to tune into that. Awesome, Dave. Love that. Yeah. We mentioned that book on the last show. Yeah. For mine, I would, I'm just like, I came across a podcast. Um, it's called intercepted from the intercept, um, website and it's, uh, hosted by Jeremy Scahill, who I like a lot. And this week there was a, a interview with Ruthie Gilmore, who founded Critical Resistance, and I thought it was an amazing podcast on what abolition is. And then some of the earlier episodes are really good too. Um, and I would also leave folks like um, Friday is Juneteenth, and that's a really important like holiday. It it's not one that we were taught growing up in a white environment, um, but is commemorates the ending of slavery in the United States. And um, like knowing that history and learning about Juneteenth is an important thing going forward um, around learning about, yeah, uh, the like lineage of black resistance. Nice. Yeah. I, I love that, Bob. Yeah, and if you want to get in touch with us, you can get at Bob at bmaze at Twitter or bmaze19 at Twitter. You can hit me up at davepeachtree at gmail.com or you can follow us at um, our new Instagram account, Thriving in Dystopia, which we're all pretty excited about. Nice, Dave. Well, thank you for hosting this show. Um, it's great to be in the sound studio again with you and We'll try to get some more stickers going for next week, I guess. Yeah. Well, maybe we should uh, turn that music knob up so everyone can hear a little bit of Kala. And we'll see you all next week. Love you, Bob. Love you, Dave. Take care. Hey, y'all. Bob and I want to just take a second to thank you all for lending us your ears for the show. It really does mean a lot to us from the bottom of our heart. We also want to thank the artists for making our show a little bit more beautiful. The intro song is a song called In Heaven by Drake Stafford. The outro song that you're listening to right now is a song called Comfort You by Culla. And the thumbnail is done by the prolific and enigmatic Joe Shine. Thank you all. And we'll see you next week. Hope you have a good one. Comfort to you, comfort to you. We ain't got nothing to do with where you are. Or where you've been, or where you're going. Comfort to you, comfort to you Has got something to do with who you are And higher love, and higher pain, and higher sorrow